Welcome to Outside the Lines, the podcast of our host, Bob Cheviar. Bob is a longtime teaching pro in Westchester County, New York, and a former top 15 ranked player in the United States in the men's 35 and 40 and over singles and doubles in the late 1980s and early 90s. He is also the author of the path-breaking book, Deconstructing Tennis, The 4D System. The book lays out a simple and complete framework for how to use the time between points in tennis. Bob's co-host on Outside the Lines is Scott Shannon, also a teaching pro in Westchester, whose best ranking in men's open singles was number two in the East in 1980. He was also ranked number one in the East that year in doubles with Peter Bromley. Scott was also a top 10 player in the U.S. in 35 and over singles and doubles. Your hosts hope to help you get your mental approach more on target. Good morning. It's Bob Cheviar, the host of Outside the Lines, and I'll be doing a U.S. Open update this morning from the matches that were played through yesterday, the first Saturday of the event. Unfortunately, uh, Scott Shannon and I did record an episode yesterday, but the sound quality was so poor, I just couldn't post it and keep it up online. So I'm going to be doing this one on my own and sharing many of the same things that we spoke about yesterday in the unpublished podcast. So we are going to review today a few matches that really highlight ways of increasing your understanding as a fan and as a player from what you're seeing at the US Open. And we're also going to address some of the issues surrounding the tournament, like the fact that only 15, 50, excuse me, percent of the players are vaccinated. That's both on the men's and women's tours. And that Tsitsipas has sort of began uh, a debate about the bathroom break rule with a couple of long breaks, which he took um, both before the U.S. Open and in a match in his second round match uh, this this week, uh, where he was taking a break of more than eight minutes to change his clothes. Everyone was saying that's much too long and it broke the rhythm and momentum of his opponents. So going to look at the results, yesterday we had a very routine win from Novak Djokovic over Kane Shikori. He looks well on track to accomplish his goal of winning the Grand Slam. This was a very workmanlike effort. Djokovic showed very little emotion, looked like he was just having to punch the time clock, get in at nine, punch out at five, get this over with, and move on. On the women's side, Ashley Barty was upset after leading 5-2 in the third set against Shelby Rogers, and that match had a story where Shelby really changed up the patterns of play. She was 0-5 going into this match with Barty but she frequently slowed the ball down with some really high, I would call them almost 12 and under moon ball type shots, which took Barty out of her offensive rhythm. 
and made the points longer than they were used to having in the past when they played each other. So a great job from Shelby Rogers in playing an alternate strategy there to derail a really strong number one seed, Ashley Barty. So there are four matches that I'd like to talk about more in terms of understanding uh, for all of you so that you can figure out what's going on when you're watching a tennis match. Now, I think you all know after losing in the second round, Naomi Osaka um, has said that she is going to be taking uh, an indefinite break from tennis because after victories, rather than any kind of joy, she only feels relief. And if she loses, she feels sadness. So there's really no upside in that sort of approach to tennis. You get nothing from doing well, and you only slip further and further emotionally if you should happen to lose. So I think in her case, it's definitely a good idea that she does take this indefinite break from the game. Now, in today's New York Times, Matt Futterman has a really good piece. It's entitled, Why Does Tennis Make So Many Pros Miserable? And he talks about a few things. And one really struck me. One is that in any tennis tournament, there's one winner and everyone else is seen as a loser. And if you if you look at something like golf, in golf, if I'm on the pro tour and I finish fourth, I'm really proud. I came in fourth in this event. It was really tough competition and I'm fourth. In tennis, if you lose in the semifinals, you're lumped in with the losers of the group. So tennis has a peculiar type of extra pressure in terms of judging yourself in terms of success and failure. Now, Iga Swatek, the young Polish woman who won the French Open last year, her sports psychologist addresses this issue, and she advises something like the following. Self-worth and confidence should not be built up by wins and ranking points, but rather by relationships. This is a really key idea. Even at the local level, I'm a big believer in that bond when a doubles team goes out to play between the two partners and the emotional support that one gives the other. This not only makes the game more fun, but many times that additional support is the difference between victory and defeat. So let's look more at Naomi Osaka's stats in that match, which she lost to Layla Fernandez, 6-4 in the third. So one thing that really impressed me was that in the third set, Fernandez won 18 out of 19 first serve points. Now, returning a first serve is a very quick action. You have to react quickly. You have to move quickly. You have to match up the ball into the strings. And Osaka showed that she's just a little bit behind in terms of this defensive skill, because returning serve against the first serve, often you're on defense. And I think it also explains why 
perhaps she's having too many unforced errors within the rally because her movement is not good enough. She can't get on defense and scramble for three balls and get herself out of trouble. If she loses control of the point, she's most often going to lose the point. So when you're in that situation as a player, you tend to go for too much at the wrong time because you don't want to let yourself fall onto defense. So my number one advice to Osaka would be, maybe you don't hit the ball for a while, but off the court, let's really get yourself moving here and get that movement up another level, because that's going to be a key to you being able to play the type of tennis you would like. There are a couple of other stats, though, which reveal another reason why Naomi Osaka might not have done that well. In the third set, she was zero for zero when coming for, to the net, and she was zero for zero attempting drop shots. In other words, Layla Fernandez is a great mover, but she only had to cover the back half of the court. She never had to worry about anything coming to the front. So this points in the direction of Osaka having an extremely one-dimensional type of attack. She is an attacking player. And I would contrast that with, let's say, Simona Halep, who's more of a counterpuncher. But let's look at Sabalenka, the number two seed, who in her match with Danielle Collins in the entire match had 12 winners and four unforced errors on her forehand during the entire match. But she also came to the net and won 11 out of 11. In her third set, Naomi Osaka the other night, in, with her forehand, had seven unforced errors and only two winners. So this one-dimensional quality of her game, I think in some level, it really allows her opponents to be extra prepared for what she's going to be trying to do on the court. And the other thing I think she needs to do besides some speed work is work on her variety so that she is using the entire court. Very important to have opponents have to cover the short part of the court as well. Now we had another amazing match a couple days ago when Carlos Alcaraz upset Tsitsipas 7-6 in the fifth set. 7-5 in the tiebreaker. Now, in that fifth set, again, we're going to look at statistics to see if we can figure something out about the match. Tsitsipas actually won more total points, 40 to 39. However, the match was really decided by looking at another statistic, because we all know, for example, winning more points, it's the important points that count. So let's, let's look at behind the scenes a little bit more. And we when we look at their backhand statistics, we begin to see the real story of this match. Alcaraz had 23 winners and forced errors and only seven unforced errors with his backhand. Tsitsipas, meanwhile, had only 10 winners and forced errors versus 17 unforced errors. Now, Tsitsipas did, in the fifth set, he did do what I say always determines the winner in a fifth set. He served amazingly well. He had six aces, 
and he won 18 out of 20 first serve points. So when he was serving, he got the job done. The problem was in this backhand to backhand exchange where he wasn't able to transition to offense. And my feeling was he needed to be hitting a lot more backhands down the line, even with a low slice to try to open up the court and not play along the diagonal where he was getting out hit. His backhand was pretty solid, but he was not generating any offensive capability with that pattern. Now, the other thing that comes up when I look at the Tsitsipas Alcaraz match, obviously it was very close. It was 7-5 in the fifth set tiebreaker. And Tsitsipas on two, two grounds. One, most of the educated New York crowd knows that he's an anti-vaxxer. And I think it caused more than a few of them to stop supporting him when he was on the court because they just regard this as an ignorant decision. They don't want to support it. And number two, his long bathroom breaks had caused other fans to say he's using maybe not cheating, but unsportsmanlike behavior in order to gain an advantage over his opponents. So between those two, by the way, uh, Sitsipas did in that match with Alcaraz have a bathroom break and it was down to three minutes and 45 seconds. So he was definitely responding to the public outcry, which didn't support these extended breaks that he was taking. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, they say the crowd is the third player. I think the crowd not cheering for Sitsipas because of these two related issues may have been enough to swing the match for Carlos Alcaraz. Alcaraz played amazing tennis. I don't want to take anything away from him. But when it's that close at the end and one player is being cheered and the other one is not, that can often be the difference maker in the match. Now, just to go a little further into bathroom break, um, Jensen Brooksby has made the round of 16. He's going to be playing against Novak Djokovic tomorrow. But in his match with Taylor Fritz in the second round, he had a bathroom break of more than seven and a half minutes. No one said a word to him, but I can still see the TV feed of Taylor Fritz waiting on the court, looking lost. And you could see he was thinking to himself, where is this guy? What is going on here? Now, Taylor didn't handle this long delay any better than Andy Murray did against Tsitsipas. Uh, Fritz lost that fourth set. It was the third set uh, bathroom break after the third. Fritz lost it 6-2, and Brooksby was getting better and better as he went. Now, in the match yesterday against Karatsev, Brooksby did take an injury timeout, but he didn't actually call the trainer and have an examination. He simply had a massage on court into his left hip, which he claimed, and he was mouthing to his box, I can't move. Well, he got this massage, and even though it didn't delay the actual um, 
play, Karatsev then subsequently took a short bathroom break after the fourth set. It definitely threw Karatsev for a loop in that uh, he, I think he was thinking, well, my opponent can't move and I'm hitting these bullets in the corner and he's still getting everything back. So that's a miracle massage that Brooksby got there. And um, I'm suggesting we need to keep an eye on him for his sportsmanship and his use of injury timeouts. I, I don't think he behaved in the in the best way in that in that match with Karatsev yesterday. So there was another match um, a couple of days ago where Kay Nishikori, who I mentioned, lost to Djokovic yesterday. But in his second match, he played Mackenzie McDonald, the young American who's been having a phenomenal summer. And they were at two sets to love for Nishikori. McDonald has been playing great. And as one of the commentators, I think it was Patrick McEnroe, was a little surprised that Nishikori was cruising. And sure enough, McDonald came back and tied it at two sets all, and then actually took the lead by breaking Nishikori in the opening game of the fifth set. So I went back into the stats to see what would I find, and everything was remarkably the same between the players during all stages of the match. First serve percentage, winners from the ground strokes, unforced errors from the ground strokes, net approaches. There was nothing between the two players. So this was a case of a match where luckily I saw the match and I could see what turned the match to Nishikori 6-3 in the fifth set. And what did it was once Mackenzie McDonald got the lead. He was up a break in that next service game. He used two drop shots, which he hadn't been using the entire day. Both of them went too deep in the court and Nishikori came in and had easy balls above the level of the net and made putaways. And Mackenzie McDonald got broken back. At this point, he didn't eschew the drop shot. He actually stuck with it a few more times and probably used it another five times of which he won only one point for the rest of the fifth set. And the point total at the end, Nishikori won five more points than Mackenzie McDonald. This is a form to me of choking under pressure. You're looking for the easy route to bring home victory rather than realizing when you're playing someone like Nishikori, a former Grand Slam finalist, top five in the world player at one time, he's not going away. He's probably going to raise his game as it gets closer to the finish line because he doesn't want to lose to what he would perceive as a lower player. Going with the drop shot was a, a really, unfortunately for Mackenzie McDonald, a poor decision. And then there was one other match, really, uh, between Karolina Pliskova and Amanda Anasimova, which went to 9-7 in the third. Pliskova was the winner. This match, most matches, I can tell who's going to win by watching for 10 minutes. And I can see the patterns of play and who's forcing shots or not, who's watching the ball better. In this match, I was getting no clues. And 
I couldn't tell till the very end. Finally, someone Plishkova won and they shook hands. But here's why I found it impossible to tell. Throughout the match, Plishkova had 24 aces. And in the third set alone, she had 11 aces. So her serve was the dominant force on the court. But for Anna Samova, that's only part of the story because once the ball was in play, her forehand had 13 winners or forced errors compared to only six unforced. And it was a 10-6 margin with her backhand in the third set. So once the ball was in play, Animus, Anis, Anisimova, excuse me, um, really was playing a phenomenal game off of the baseline. It was really impossible to tell watching which one was going to come through, that great serve or those great attacking ground strokes. This was really one of the most well-played matches that I've seen in quite a while. So what have we, well, one other thing I wanted to um, just go over at, at one point when Sitsipas began the match with Alcaraz, Brad Gilbert commented he had never seen so many mishits from a top player. And I would agree. Now, when did these mishits occur? Right at the start of the match, what happens at the start of the match, typically nerves. And then later on, the mishits would occur, but almost every time at 30-40 or 40-30. Again, more pressure. To me, this means one simple thing. Sitsipas is not focusing on the right thing as the pressure increases in the match. He is not staying with the ball long enough. So all my lessons know this. We have to look the ball all the way in and we have to remind ourselves before the start of every point, a simple solution like this to get Sitsipas much more with his ball watching skills would really serve him well to overcome some of these nerve moments within the match. So when Scott and I were talking yesterday, he actually asked the question, he says, well, he asked, what should we be thinking about while the ball is in play? So give that a little thought yourselves as you try to figure that out. And the answer is, Nothing. That's right. Nothing. You should be an observer, or as Scott said yesterday, you should be having full awareness of what's going on between you and your opponent, which to me means looking that ball into the strings and looking for the blur of the racket on ground strokes. So this is one of the toughest things to learn in tennis, to let the decision-making cross-court down the line that isn't happening each time you're hitting the ball. For example, here's an example of uh, how I might want to be thinking against a certain player. I want to move the ball around, and when I get an opportunity, I'm going to attack his backhand. So when I say move the ball around, I'm not giving myself a particular target 
that I'm going to be hitting every single time. I'm giving myself leeway, but I do visualize how I'd like the point to end with me at the net and my opponent trying to hit a passing shot or a lob. It's really, really important to know how to talk to yourself to set up the right type of point that you'd like to be playing and not to be thinking while the ball is in play. So we've seen a few things today. We've seen that statistics, like in the case of Naomi Osaka and in the case of Alcaraz versus Sitsipas, can really illuminate what happened in a tennis match in a way that's even more insightful than simply watching the match itself. So on the US Open website, if you go to the IBM Slam Tracker, you can get these statistics if there's a match that you'd like to try to figure out and see a little bit more about what was actually going on. Then we saw that there are other matches where those statistics are so close and there's no apparent cause and effect of what separated winner from loser. In that case, actually seeing the match being played with, for example, like with the McKenzie McDonald drop shots was key to understanding what happened to determine the winner in that match. This is our update number one. We will be coming out with another one within a couple of days. And thank you all for listening.